You are listening to part 7 from the 1993 through 94 John series on chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, preached by Pastor John Castile, recorded at 10:45 a.m. on September 12, 1993. Glory. Open your Bibles if you would to John chapter 3. Remember that the book of John was written for the purpose, as John said in chapter 21, or chapter 20, these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so the Gospel of John was not written in a chronological order of events just as a life history of Jesus, but instead that those historical times of Jesus were brought that in John's mind you would hear and sense just who Jesus was and by that you would believe in him and that through believing there would be life. And so John deals not with the great sermons or all of the journeys of Jesus, but he selects times, especially those times when he personally talked to somebody, when he was ministering one-on-one, and he would explain some deep, important precept of God. As we study today, I'm going to read 17 verses from John, chapter 3. We're going to cover the background of that favorite scripture of the church, which is John 3.16. John 3.16 is so powerful in so many people's life that there are people who've taken it upon themselves as a ministry just to dangle John 3.16 in front of a camera every time you watch a football game. And you'll find it in graffiti on walls. People put it in bathrooms. They do everything they can to get wherever people will look to look at John 3.16. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't know what John 3.16 is all about. But most of us remember from our Sunday school and our childhood remembering that verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that wonderful verse that we've learned literally declares, in a nutshell, the gospel story of God's love that moved him to offer the only gift, the only answer, the only resolution to the sin problem. Someone who could pay the penalty of sin, someone could, in its place, offer life instead of death, offer light instead of darkness. And so, we're going to study the background and the reason that Jesus gave this verse. How it came about. It's a very interesting story. It's about a man. A man's pursuit of God. A man who probably didn't even realize what he was doing. Like many of the things that we do that are, that are ordered, that are impulses, that are from subconscious levels in our, in our being that we don't quite understand, but we find ourselves in position asking questions that we haven't really articulated before. We're going to read the first 17 verses and then going to try to explain them to you and save the rest of the chapter until next week. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who who has come from God. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. 
Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent, did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is an amazing encounter. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Paul immediately establishes who this man was. He was of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a group of believers that had come into a common commitment. It was called the brotherhood of men, is what it meant. The Pharisees who made a vow to do and obey all of the law of God. That they would give their lives in the attempt to keep all the commandments of God. They had grown as a sect. They had grown as a group in the Jewish nation. At the present time, they were a minority in the fact that the Sadducees were ruling in Israel. But this sect was commingled within the rest of the governing body and into the nation so that those that were Pharisees were more like the conservative Christians of our day that really did believe the Word of God. And they believed not only that the Word of God was accurate, but that there was a spiritual world behind everything, organizing and orchestrating human events. They were very right on in their doctrine, their teaching. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Very, very strong in his religious endeavors. He was also a member of the ruling council. To be a member of the ruling council, you had to have certain natural acumen. You had to first be born of the right family. You had to be able to trace, trace your ancestry back to Abraham. You had to know that you were of the right natural lineage that your Jewishness was pure. Then you had to go through all the studies of law. Nicodemus, obviously, was one of those men who had a doctorate in jurisprudence, not taken from American common law, but from the Word of God itself. So he'd studied the Bible and all of the Jewish literature to a place that he was recognized as a master in teaching and training and following and counseling in regarding the Jewish religion. Not only had he done his study, been from the right family, but he had to have enough wealth and enough popularity for the people to consent to him being one of the ruling party or the Sanhedrin. He had to be above 40 years of age. He had to have his family together, his children in order. All of those things that a man must have to be exemplary to the nation so that they would choose and affirm you as one of those who would rule over the nation. The Sanhedrin had begun when Moses complained to the Lord 
back in the early days of their journeys in the wilderness, at the heaviness and the pressure of leading the people that was upon him. And God had said, Choose from the elders of Israel 70 men whom I can take the spirit of anointing is upon you and put on them, and they will help you and be your helpers in ruling. And from that time, Israel had had this group of 70 elders plus the high priest, 70 plus one, and they were rulers over the nation. Under Roman government, when they were conquered by the Romans, great effort was made to explain to the Romans and to those of the Greek-speaking language just what the Jewish religion was and its validity. And upon doing that, they convinced the Romans and the Jewish religion became a religion licita, a valid religion. And therefore, the Romans even though they were in control, had given them autonomy under the blanket of Roman rule to rule the nation. So he was not just a religious ruler, but he was a civil authority in Israel. They had, within the law, the opportunity to formulate normal life of the citizenry around the Scripture and around the Ten Commandments and around the sacrifices. So their holidays were the same as the Bible holidays. Their oversight of the nation was according to the Old Testament scriptures. The local ordinances were taken from the Bible itself. So this man ruled civilly in civil court. He would be one of the judges. He also was part of the rulership of what we would call the doctrinal oversight of the nation. That all the matters concerning the understanding and the extension of the Jewish religion were under these rulers' power. and They would oversee this doctrinal situation. That caused them to be men of influence not only locally in Israel, but to every Jew throughout the world would look to them for understanding and interpretation of the law. Not only did they do that, but they were to hear and to validate or invalidate the prophets or those teachers who would rise up, whether their message was valid and whether it contained the essential elements of the scripture in them and whether they were on track or not. And so the people looked to these people in these three realms of government, civil, religious, and doctrinal oversight. He was a man who had worked hard. He was a man who was diligent. He was a man who lived his walk and his practice. He was popular. He had wealth, he had friends, he had influence. And the Bible says simply that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. We're not sure exactly why he would come by night, and it's strange that John would mention that when other times he doesn't. It may have been because the Jewish practice, and it had been said in Jewish law, that the time to study and the time to really get into deep Understanding the scripture was at night because then you could do it without interruptions. People would not interrupt you because very few people burnt the midnight oil. And so we don't know whether Nicodemus came to Jesus at night because he was concerned about being seen with this vagrant preacher, this itinerating guy from Galilee, and whether that would injure him politically to be seen conversing with him and be seen learning from him or whether he was following the normal practice to go and to encounter somebody in a way and in a setting that they could not be interrupted so that they could really talk heart to heart and in this way judge 
and bring back to the Jewish fathers whether or not Jesus' message and person were valid. The scripture doesn't tell us this. It might have been both reasons. It might have been not to be seen, and it might have been also to spend time with him alone. And so, when we consider Nicodemus, to me it is so powerful from Scripture that God would take and choose this man to talk about the new birth experience is very powerful. Because here was a man who had everything that you could religiously desire to be. He had everything that you could humanly want as far as family, friends, influence, power, prestige, and honor. And yet we find him coming to Jesus. Many of the old preachers carry a theme, the old evangelists of this generation and generations gone by, saying that God has placed in every man a vacant place, an empty spot, that only the Lord himself can fill. And so that no matter what they seek after, no matter how much they search, no matter how much they look, no matter how much they experience, they are still empty inside until they find the Lord. And that only he can fill that void. It may be this void in Nicodemus that pushed him, interested him, that maybe he'd heard of him and something went off in his heart that I need to meet with him and find out just who this man is. A man who had no education, a man who was a carpenter, a man who had no scriptural lineage as far as they were concerned because they didn't know he was born in Bethlehem. They thought he was from Nazareth. A man who had no family background because the inference was he was born out of wedlock. And yet, here we find this scholar, this theologian, this judge, this political figure coming to Jesus. And verse 2 tells us how he came, just how he approached him. And you can hear the politics in it. You can hear the, the baiting that's going on. And it's interesting to see how Jesus responded. He says, Rabbi, which means teacher, which could have meant that I, as a judge, acknowledge you as a teacher. Very high regard for Jesus. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. First of all, we don't know who he is. We don't know whether he actually came as a committee from the Sanhedrin to investigate Jesus. We don't know whether he came of his own accord or whether there was just a faction within the Sanhedrin who had heard enough to already begin to believe. Nicodemus doesn't tell us whether this is official or not, but he begins his conversation with a recommendation and with flattery, with... uh, A political gesture, if you please. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God. And then he mentions signs. Now, in John's Gospel, we don't know this happened early on or later on in his ministry. If it happens chronologically, the only signs that we see so far are Jesus making water into wine, which probably went all over the countryside after it happened, as far as gossip was concerned, and then Jesus purging the temple. John's baptism, the Lord speaking from heaven. 
It may be those signs that he was talking about that had convinced Nicodemus, among others, that this was no ordinary country preacher, that this man was literally sent from God to teach. What he did not recognize him as is Lord, but just as a teacher. It's amazing to me how that Jesus stepped away from all of the politics and all of the agenda that Nicodemus laid out to him or stepped aside from any attempt to prove himself as a teacher or a rabbi and went to the heart of Nicodemus' need. Because in all of this that was going on, Jesus knew that Nicodemus needed a lot more than just another new issue or another doctrine or another leaf to turn over in his life. He needed to be born again. And that he would never be complete until he had been born of the Spirit. And so Jesus sets aside all of the stuff that is happening and just says to him very simply in verse 3, In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. This was an amazing answer. Nicodemus obviously did not expect this. Aren't you glad that the Lord can cut to the heart of our issues and speak to our need, even like he did prophetically to us this morning? We come with all of our agendas, and we come with all of our needs, and we're so concerned about those that many times they hinder us from finding the Lord because our hearts are on them and we're worried and we're anxious about them. But if we will just drop that anxiety and be anxious about knowing him, knowing him will cause the release of all of those things. And the Holy Spirit cuts through all of that as we worship speaks to us. Jesus did that. He said, Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? Now, obviously, Nicodemus was a man who understood spiritual depth. And as an Eastern person, he understood that many things were parallel in the spirit as well as natural. But he chose the natural side of the statement rather than following and pursuing it spiritually or opening himself up to the spiritual intent of what Jesus said, he just said, how can a man that is old be born again? Can he enter, or surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? Very good answer, but it's a very natural answer. Jesus answered in verse 5, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Now notice he said two dimensions of the kingdom cannot be bridged unless you're born again. One, you cannot see the kingdom. You cannot perceive the kingdom of God. You cannot comprehend it or understand it. It's beyond your ability to know And then it's beyond your ability to enter. 